Good day, Terry. How are you? I'm great, CB. Good to see you. Thank you. Looking as handsome as ever. Oops, that's not politically correct. <laughs> <Darn it. laughs> We're all friends here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so everyone, this is the challenges of the C-suite brought to you by the Association of Corporate Executive Coaches. I am so glad you're here to hear us again. And this is CB Live. And today we're talking to Dr. Terry Hildebrand, who is a PhD and MCEC, that's a Master Corporate Executive Coach with the Association of Corporate Executive Coach, Coaches, and he is an MCC with ICF. So he is an authority. And guys, I wanna just tell you a secret. He knows more about certifications in the corporate executive coaching space than anybody I know. He is a walking encyclopedia. So whenever anyone has any questions about the value of an assessment, we go to Dr. Terry. So Dr. Terry, what you can talk to us about today? First, well, tell us about you. you. Well, thanks, CB. That's a great introduction. Um, today, I'm going to talk about a number of things. But before we do, just a little bit about me. I've uh, been an executive coach for 23 years uh, and work mostly in high tech as well as healthcare and education and uh, many other fields. But those are my big three. I uh, live in Denver, Colorado. Been in Colorado now for 26 years. Can you believe it? And uh, it's been an exciting ride, uh, especially through COVID lately. Uh, and um, my own background, I was at HP for 22 years and started as an engineer and managed a lot of different areas and then was also an internal coach uh, for 11 years, which was where my coaching career started. I'm also an academic. Uh, I teach and I work with doctoral students on dissertations and coaching and uh, for a couple of years, uh, led a coaching school as well to train new coaches. I didn't know that part. <laughs> Absolutely. I, uh, now I'm back and doing my own practice full time. I really enjoy entrepreneurism uh, the best. Uh, so that's my calling and what I plan to do uh, from here on out. Well, we're certainly fortunate to have you in the executive coaching space. And you know what? You actually said a mouthful there because for many reasons. But the reason why you're so successful and the reason why you're part of ACEC is you came to the coaching space with an incredibly strong business background. So you can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with anyone in the C-suite because you've been in their shoes. And that is the, the definition of the coaches that are part of ACEC. Absolutely. Uh, I think that's a distinguishing mark of ACEC is the uh, having strong business experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just get to it. Okay. So my question to you is ready. Drum roll. <laughs> um, pretty poor drum roll, but whatever. Um, what are the three greatest challenges that you see that members of the C-suite have? Mm, it's a great question. And uh, and certainly right now there's uh, lots, right, in managing all the change going on in the world today. 
Um, and the ones I'd love to talk to you and uh, our listeners about today are emotional self-management uh, to deal with stress. I think everyone's under stress, uh, probably at a higher level than maybe ever before. Uh, that's number one. Um, number two, I would say, is managing the political systems within organizations. Uh, today, uh, you can't really succeed as a leader, certainly not an executive, uh, without political savvy. So political savvy is one of my topics that comes up with just about every one of my clients. Um, and then the third is really developing strong teams, which includes starting with strategy. You know, strategy seems to be the thing that everyone uh, is learning these days and trying to get better at on an ongoing basis. And sometimes they don't teach you this uh, in a regular undergraduate program. So unless you've been through an MBA, strategy is often uh, a mystery to uh, up and coming leaders. Uh, so that's another one of my uh, specialty areas that I really love working with leaders on. So, you know, um, these are all fabulous. And I'm going to pick my favorite first, which is managing political systems. I've never heard of it phrased quite like that um, in, in organizations. You know, I have to share with you, as a black woman in corporate America, which I was for longer than I care to say, uh, I, you know what, I never quite got the political savvy part. And, and I'm not saying this is not something blacks can't get. What I'm saying is there was no place to go to learn this. And I came from the world of the arts as an interior designer. And so I went to Parsons School of Design before I went to B School. And uh, you know, the arts are just a whole different animal. We did not act like this. You know, everything was out on the open. Everybody was friendly and supportive of each other. Yeah, there was some competition, don't get me wrong. But it was, let's say, friendly fire. And the corporate world certainly wasn't that. I was so not prepared. That's where I want to start. How do you get prepared? How do you learn political savvy? What does it mean in the organization? Why does it drive you crazy? All those questions, all mushed into one. So great, talk, great, Terry. Great question. So. So, you know, I, I did a lot of research on political savvy and how to develop it. And it really comes down to what I call the five steps. <laughs> so I've got a model that um, makes this accessible and, and really something you can learn. Okay. You know, some people say, well, you know, you're, you're great politically, but how do you do it? Well, uh, I've given uh, um, my uh, coaches that I work with so a really simple formula. And I'd love to share with the, you those five steps. Yes, 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 that pin, pins in hand. <laughs> but you know, ultimately it's, a, it's starting with really good mindset about political savvy. A lot of people avoid it completely, thinking that it's you know, dirty or you, know, you hear the word dirty politics and it doesn't have to be that, right? You can have clean politics, you know, and ideally every organization um, runs on clean politics, which is really about building allies ultimately. So starting with a mindset shift about politics that it doesn't have to be a negative thing. In fact, it can be a real positive thing uh, if it's done correctly. 
so I think mindset is is important. Um, and the first step then, once you have your the right mindset and you're open to really seeing this in a positive light, is to understand who the key players are in any given situation. Um, and you know, every political situation is going to have its own unique uh, constellation of players. Uh, and some of these you might uh, think are obvious and they're the people on the org chart, but there's always these other people behind the scenes that you may not know even exist. Uh, and they're the folks who have the ear of the movers and shakers in any given situation. And, and they're all vying, right, for their say and their influence. Uh, but trying to uh, get a lay of the land and understand who those people, people are is, is number one. And I recommend you create a map, actually, writing their names down uh, on a piece of paper so you can look at it in a holistic way. So once you figure out who they are, then you want to understand their interests, which is step two. Uh, and interests are very broad. It might include um, their goals, uh, business goals, personal goals, financial goals, uh, promotional or career goals. Uh, it also might include hidden agendas, which is where people get tripped up a lot, is that they're not aware of an interest that a leader might have and they're surprised by their behavior in a given setting. Uh, but it, the more you know about their interests, uh, the better off you are. And getting to know them is critical. And if you have direct access, this means getting to know people as Wait, wait, is this number four, getting to know them? Well, it's part of understanding their interests. So how do you, how do you get to know someone's interests, right? It is by asking them lots of questions, spending time with them, listening to them very carefully to what they are saying uh, and what they don't say, uh, what makes them excited, uh, what makes them upset, <laughs> right? So you can infer uh, in many cases, even their hidden agendas. Um, by being very careful listeners. Uh, also getting to know the people that know them, right? So you may not have access to certain people very often, but you might have more access to their key people. And I always say, get to know the executive admin. <laughs> they know everything, right? Uh, so they can be your best friend when you are trying to understand how someone might react to a certain situation. Uh, certainly having access to their other direct reports and influencers is also really important. Um, but spending as much time as you can on an ongoing basis, this isn't a one-time thing, it's an ongoing process of staying on top of people's interests, which of course, as you know, change over time. People do change their mind and, and it, this is a moving target and something that is a living system that you have to be aware of. Uh, so. So that's the second step is knowing their interests. Third step is knowing who has power and who has authority. And I wait define second, authority. Wait a second. I'm up to number four already. On my <laughs> paper. So, okay. So go back to this. Uh, number four is, what is it now? So, so, num so number four in your, in your list is probably part of sub, sub, step of number two, which is, is understanding interests, right? So I can look, give, give you all five really quickly. That might be helpful as an overview. So, so what, number one is knowing the key players. Number two is knowing their interests. Number three is who has power and authority, right? And then number four is looking at conflicts as well as alliances. 
And then five is uh, developing your political strategy. So those are the uh, high level, the big five. Okay, give me five again. Develop the, the five is developing your political strategy. Yeah. Okay. You know what? I think we're going to spend this whole show talking about these five. Okay. <laughs> okay we so can we'll do that. <laughs> Come back. Okay. Let's take it apart now. Excellent. So we talked quite a bit already about uh, interests, mm -hmm. uh, but number three is is uh, even more important in my mind is who has authority, who has power, uh, where authority are the folks on the org chart that have the ability to make decisions and allocate resources, approve purchase orders, uh, employee requisitions, things of that nature. Um, those in power are those that influence those in authority. So you may not have the ability to make a decision, but you have power to influence those that do. Uh, and so both of these different categories of people are important. And of course, all of them are on your key players list, but it's important what each of the key players can do for you or do to you in some cases, right? Uh, so getting a clear picture of who has authority and how much and, and who has power to influence those in authority is critical. And we'll come back to this in a minute when we look at, at number four, which is where are the common uh, and, and major conflicts and where are the natural alliances? So conflicts and alliances, again, are number four. So when you're looking at uh, conflicts uh, in any given situation, there's going to be some people who will support you and there'll be others that will uh, really resist you or fight you on certain things. And even though they might be friends of yours in the uh, world outside of business, any given situation, they may or may not be supportive of your position. So it's really important to, to know and not assume that just because someone um, has been an ally in the past, they may or may not uh, be an ally in this particular context. Uh, so being able to map out where each of the key players are and re in relation to what you're trying to achieve or your particular goals that you are uh, pushing uh, is really important. The ultimate goal is to increase your number of allies and to reduce the number of conflicts or, or at least manage your resistors. Uh, so that's an important uh, element is to really know where they stand on any particular issue that you're uh, trying to promote. Lastly, which is the most important piece is developing your political strategy. So- so political strategy consists of how am I going to build allies and how am I going to manage any resistance that might be out there? Um, and political strategy also includes things like timing. Is now the right time to move forward or should I wait on this for a while until the constellation of players shift or there's a more, more openness to this? As you know, timing's everything, CB, and I know you've experienced that, right? Sometimes people are ready uh, for an initiative or, or uh, some kind of a program, and, and maybe they're not there yet. Uh, or maybe there's a few key people that are supportive, but not enough to be critical mass. So that's one of the questions. Is the timing right, or should I uh, build more support 
or get more allies uh, first. And if the question is no, it's not the right time, then you might ask yourself, uh, who do I need to work on uh, to be stronger allies? Um, you also want to know the extent of your of the resistance in place. Uh, how much pushback am I likely to get uh, if I move forward with this or propose this? Uh, and who's willing to stand with me to overcome that resistance? You know, do I have enough what, what I would call relationship capital uh, around this issue where people will literally stand up in a meeting and say, yes, I support this initiative or this proposal? Uh, and this is similar to what you might see in political systems, right? Are, are they going to stand up and, and sign on to what you're trying to do? Or are they more just behind the scenes armchair supporters that, that aren't really ready to put themselves on the line? Uh, and that's where the rubber meets the road in political savvy is how many allies do you have and are they strong enough to overcome any objections that might exist? Uh, also, for the objectors um, or the people that might be resistors, how much power do they have and are they likely to overrule you and everybody else that might be standing with you? Um, or are they um, someone that might be convinced? Uh, to move forward with what you're proposing. Uh, so understanding the extent of their power and authority is, is really important. And then if they are uh, likely to resist you, how can you manage that? Are there ways to uh, meet with them ahead of time? What I call lining up the ducks, right? Making sure that when you go into whatever forum that you're gonna present this proposal that they're not gonna blindside you right, or they're going to be clear about where they stand, um, but it'll be manageable. Uh, so really important piece there. Um, I think another key element of political savvy is if I move forward, I might win this battle, but will I lose the war? <laughs> and what I mean by that is what's the fallout? Uh, maybe you'll get through what you're doing, but the next time you will have no supporters because you burn some bridges, right? Or upset some people to the point that they no longer trust you. Uh, so that's uh, a really important piece because this is not a one-time is, you know, issue, especially if you're an internal employee or even a, a consultant, right? You're wanting to build a long-term relationship uh, that is gonna last. Uh, so it's always looking at the bigger picture of, okay, well, what's gonna be the fallout if I move forward? Uh, or will people be excited and enthusiastic and this will build my relationship capital? So all these questions that we're asking here go into building your political strategy. Terry, where were you when I was a kid? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to answer that question. I might get in trouble. <laughs> That's good political strategy, Terry. <laughs> that answer. Oh my God. Have you written a book about all this? Well, I've written a blog post, which is on my website. Uh, okay. It's not on the ACEC website. Thank you very much. But we could get it on there for sure. Okay. We really need it on there because I want to cut it out and put it on my wall because <laughs> I'm still learning these lessons. <laughs> so, okay. So how you know, I'm I, well, God, where do I start? Um, I think I want to start with 
how do you manage the emotional self so that you can develop a political system? Because isn't that incredibly hard to stay focused when you're when your mind is all upset about issues or an issue? Absolutely. So I think a big piece of this is self-management, right? Because political uh, battles or systems can be frustrating. They can make you angry. If people show up and try and sabotage you, you can be frustrated not being able to meet your goals. You might be resentful sometimes, right? So, you know, you might be afraid to even move forward. Uh, so all these emotions uh, have the potential of either uh, supporting you in actually building your political savvy, or if you're not careful, they can sabotage you. Uh, so I have a whole nother system, which again is another five steps. <laughs> five steps seem to be a good way to go. With these okay, five. so what are we going to call this one? Five steps to what? Five steps to man for stress-free leadership. <laughs> Is there such an animal? Well, uh, if you follow these approach consistently, it will definitely reduce your stress. And uh, okay. I've been using it now for uh, three years with my clients, and they they find it revolutionary uh, in many ways. Give it, give it. I because I, I could have used this the other day. <laughs> Absolutely. So, do you have a particular? It's helpful to use a case study um, if, if you have one or just of an emotion that is, is you know, that might be coming up. So each of them go through the same five steps, but uh, the, uh, and it's called the tenor method. And, and two of my colleagues that I've been working with uh, have re recently written a book on this subject. Um, so it, it, you can go deeper if, if people are interested and it's also on my website, uh, so we can refer people to that uh, and learn more can we about get it the, on the ACEC website. Also, I mean, can we share? Absolutely, we can put a uh, a, a blog out about this uh, method. That would be useful, I think, for people. This is great. I'm telling you that I really needed this this week, and it is only Wednesday. <laughs> right. <laughs> I could imagine, right? We all uh, have things in our lives. It happened to me this morning, actually. Yeah, I remember you told me. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, this leadership thing, uh, seriously, sometimes I want to just say it sucks. Because <laughs> it's just, it is so, it was so much easier just to stay in your own cocoon, right? Right. You know, when, you know, dealing with people is messy, right? <laughs> you said a mouthful. Oh, Lord. Okay. Go for it. Yes. <laughs> so let's, let's use an example of frustration, which I think is pretty common. Um, and let's imagine someone... Sabotage as one that's really common. Yeah, but that's another one too. Absolutely. Which... Let's go with sabotage first. <laughs> So let's imagine you're trying to uh, get something approved through your maybe your board of directors or or your senior leadership team, uh, and out of the blue, uh, right when you're about ready to uh, present this um, proposal that you've been working on for months, someone uh, out of left field uh, brings up an issue that they feel is a showstopper. Uh, so what's your immediate reaction that often will come up 
Look, Why you, the hell are you waiting to now to bring this up? Right. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we may be very frustrated by that, right? That, awesome. uh, so frustration is always tied to, and this is one of the breakthrough ideas, it's always tied to, to not being on track to achieve a goal. So in, in this case, our goal was to get this proposal successfully adopted, right? Uh, with as least least amount of uh, drama as possible. <laughs> so now this uh, situation has cre created some uh, potential roadblocks, right, to achieve that goal. So then we, you know, the first step is the is known as the T step, which is release tension. So you're immediately you're probably gonna have either tightness of chest or maybe your head will hurt or you know, you're, you're now uh, exasperated in some way, your heart rate may be up. And so to release tension is- How about to, all of the above, Terry? <laughs> right. <laughs> so some deep breathing is one technique, uh, and that has been proven uh, physiologically to uh, calm down some of these things. Uh, so that's a really first step is to take some deep breaths. You might wanna walk around the building. You might wanna even, if you have more time, go to the gym and, you know, uh, blow off some steam, you know, whatever it takes to get your body to release some of that tension. Um, then your brain can think clearly about this without being overwhelmed by all those uh, transmitters and the neurotransmitters that causes frustration like cortisol and, uh, you know, adrenaline that kind of ramp us up. Uh, so now we're going to be calmed down a little bit to think clearly, which is the E step, which is name the emotion. So we've already realized that the name of the emotion here is frustration, maybe a little anger, maybe even a little fear. Um, so, but we pick one of those um, and name it and say, well, in this case, let's assume frustration is the major emotion. Um, and by naming the emotion, we're actually acknowledging that we're feeling something important uh, and that emotion can lead us to some greater insight and wisdom to what's really going on here. So if we're frustrated, then that means we're not on track to achieve a goal, which is the underlying need, uh, which is to achieve a goal and, and specifically have this um, proposal uh, go through smoothly. The O step in tenor is to be able to come up with some new options. Uh, and we have a number of knobs we can turn. The first is revisit our assumptions. And one of our assumptions might be that either this is a huge problem or maybe it's not a big problem. It, our immediate reaction might be, oh, this is huge. We might wanna do a reality check and, and ask ourselves, okay, is this really gonna derail my pro, pro process or is this a red herring that's just out there to distract me and throw me off my game? Right, <laughs> uh, or or may you know if it is just a distraction, maybe we ignore it or or address it in the presentation, but not make a big deal of it. Uh, if it is a big deal, then we ask ourselves, okay, well, um, how do we create some path forward to address it? Maybe we uh, want to quickly do some analysis. We might put together a team to work overnight to. Uh, come up with some workarounds. Uh, we might even postpone the, the, the meeting if possible 
to give us more time. So we, we begin to think strategically about how do we deal with this new issue that's been brought forward. Um, after we come up with some possibilities that are going to really work, we check against our criteria to say, is this good enough or not? Have we met the, uh, uh, met, come up with a solution that will cause us to not be frustrated anymore? Because once the frustration begins to lift, it means that we've done our work, right? we've addressed the issue, uh, which is the last phase, the R. The R is the gut check, our resolution. So we ask ourselves, how do I feel about this right now? And you, you listen to your body. Do you still have tension? Do you still have any other emotion that's creating some uncomfortableness to you? If that has dissipated, it's very likely that we have addressed this issue. Uh, Mary, can you do really all of this in the heat of a moment? <laughs> I'm like, let me give me the plate so I can throw it. Right. Well, that's the release tension. And you might need to throw a plate. Oh, okay. <laughs> let me share that with my husband then. Okay. You can buy some cheap ones at Costco, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> a domain for the head across the room. <laughs> Maybe some paper plates. Paper plates. Okay. That, that might work better. <laughs> But yeah, that is the first step though, is to release a little bit of that tension so you can think straight, right? You ever heard that phrase, she, I was so angry, I couldn't see straight, think yes. straight. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that, that's part of the process, right? And we want to acknowledge that. <laughs> I think he uses that trick on me because he'll do something to make me just crack up. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm supposed to be mad at you. Speaking of the devil. <laughs> That's a great technique when you're working with others, which you can use tenor to help other people manage their emotions, like your employees or your boss <laughs> or your spouse. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. Well, I've got all these written down, so I've got to now type them up so that I can put them on the wall. <laughs> okay, so now we've got the steps to solving... Uh, let me say backstabbers or self-sabotage or, you know, I, whatever um, you want to think of. And then, so let's move into the third area. Well, you know, it doesn't even seem to work after all of this intense conversation, <laughs> but developing strong teams. <laughs> well, you know, they, they can go together, right? Yeah, um, yeah, they could. The, uh, Teams, uh, one of the, there's many things that are needed to have a strong team, but one is the, to be able to have um, and support each other in dealing with emotional issues, right? So training a team in tenor and in stress management can really be effective, uh, as well as political savvy. Because if political savvy is done well within a team, then you're always building allies and, and being open about where people stand and how to build a strategy that's going to help the team reach its goals, both internally with each other and then externally with their key stakeholders. So I think part of team development includes political strategy as a team level, as well as emotional management within the group. I mean, the groups that really suffer, one of the biggest issues is trust, right? 
and trust is undermined, right? When you have bad politics and poor uh, stress management uh, and low emotional intelligence. Yeah, so, okay, tell me more, because what, what I see, I guess it's the same thing. What I see that's destructive in teams is, I guess I shouldn't say it's destructive, but I am, for lack of a better term, groupthink. You know, you have one leader that influences everybody, and all of a sudden, you know, all the minds that you brought together that you thought had inner strength and could give you good direction and dialogue, they're all thinking enlightened that one leader may have an unconscious bias, may have a hidden agenda. And so now the whole team dissipates. Yeah, or, or uh, I worked with one group uh, years ago. I call them the head bobbers because whatever the, the top guy would say, everyone else would sit there and do this. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna go like this now. So I <laughs> and and I, I knew them well enough where I, I uh, implemented some strategies and processes to help them prevent that. <laughs> what did you do? Uh, so one of the things we did is I uh, talked to the senior leader and I said, you know, when, when you're a very charismatic guy uh, and people do like to follow you, but, and, and you're very uh, persuasive. Uh, and, and maybe he didn't, you know, he, he probably used this to his advantage, but in this case, uh, it was hurting him because uh, he would be the first guy to share his opinion about a strategic situation or a major business decision. And I told him, you know, don't be the first guy to speak, you know, wait. To, and don't share your opinion because you're you're biasing the group, right? You're uh, creating a situation where they don't feel comfortable uh, sharing their ideas because they don't want to disagree with you, right? Uh, so that was one thing, and, and I I uh, would often facilitate these meetings uh, and ask others, you know, and I would even say, you know, we're going to go around the room and um, we'll we'll end with with the general manager today, um, but we want to hear from everyone. Or uh, we would even do more st structured ways of getting ideas on the table by having people writing their ideas on post-it notes. And then I would read each note or have people share one note at a time and go around the circle. Uh, and we'd put them up on the wall. And, and it gave us a way to understand how much support there was for an idea. Because if, if five people said the same thing, obviously that was an important idea to the group where normally we may not have gotten that level of uh, understanding of where people stood if we went with the typical um, MO, which was the senior leader starting uh, with the conversation. Um, we also developed what was called the five finger method. And the five finger method is a way of polling where a one means I'll sabotage it. I'm not agreed at all with this uh, proposal. Two is I'll likely resist it. Three is I'll go along with the crowd, but it's not my way of doing it. Four is I'm, I'm highly supportive, um, but have a few minor tweaks to it. And then five is I am all in, right? Uh, and I would, you know, we would often have a discussion and I would put on the table the proposal and read it out loud. 
and have people show their level of support. Um, and if anyone uh, was a, a one or a two, we would ask them to share what their concerns were. And uh, the ground rule was, is that if you don't do it now, you can't do it in the hallway later. <laughs> right? I love it. Okay, give us that again. So I've got one, sabotage. Right. Two is... Likely yeah. resist. Likely resist. Three is okay, it, but not my approach. Right. Uh, okay, but not my approach. Right. I'll go along with the crowd, uh, but not my favorite approach. Uh, four would be uh, supportive, but have a few minor concerns. And then five is all in. I love it. I love it. So, Terry, you mentioned something that's very popular. <laughs> I don't know whether it's because I'm now in a leadership role that I am having some serious doubts about it, but I understand the basic underlining methodology and rationale to it. But, you know, it seems like it flies in the way of cowardice leadership or not courageous leadership. And that's this method of wanting to take the pulse of people in the company or in a group or an organization absent the leader. Because ah. I believe that it leads to groupthink and not as much clarity and honesty as it's proposed to be. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I think the belief there is the leader will um, maybe Contaminate. Yeah, or shut down conversation yeah. or uh, uh, maybe um, disagree and people will be fearful. I think that's a symptom of a bigger issue when people say that, um, which is a lack of trust uh, in the organization. Uh, instead of being able to have an open dialogue with the leader, it, it is showing that something else is not working. Uh, either the hierarchy is too strong or the leader's not listening or the employees uh, lack courage. Um, or is it symptomatic of the group that's proposing this? In other words, could the rest of the team be okay and you've got this group that wants to you know, I'm using the hand motions because it's more expressive than what I want to say. Um, I think I know what you're meaning, though. It's a, it's also a, potentially a method of control to control the communication. Yes. And I, I think, again, that usually goes back to not trusting that the leader will listen or not believing they'll listen or that they uh, want to bypass leadership in some um, in some way. Uh, it could be a power play potentially as well. And, you know, I think there may be places for that, but you, you can do that um, in a lot of different ways that that don't uh, remove the leader from the equation, but can uh, inform the leader in a, a more powerful way, uh, like something as simple as the post-it note exercise. Or, you know, in the virtual world today, it's, it's posting things in the chat room, right, uh, or Q&A. Uh, and that uh, can help people like see what the ideas are. What, one of my favorite things I used to do when it was what I would call a high risk situation 
um, is to do what's called the Delphi method. And mm -hmm. the Delphi method is, is a way of um, making a decision and gaining consensus within a group. In fact, they use it for the Academy Awards every year. Uh, so it's usually done in rounds where the first round of uh, input is a series of questions can be one question, but might be a longer set. And that those questions <clears throat> are answered by all the stakeholders, including the leader. The leader wouldn't be included in it, but no one knows who said what yet uh, in round one. Uh, and but they come the whoever is facilitating, uh, and you can do this on on automated surveys as well. But you can do it via email, whatever system you want to use. I used to as the facilitator would mostly do it on email and compile everyone's results in a way that was readable. And then I'd send it out again for a second round. So then everyone has seen all the input and they can comment on it and add additional thoughts, you know, and in a brainstorming way. And then if there was still a need for a third round, you could even do a third round. But most of the time, the second round was enough. And then I would bring all that data back to the, the group as a whole, including the leader. And then we would uh, deal with whatever showed up. So it could be a, a powerful way to get ideas on the table really fast uh, without even having a meeting, right? Uh, so it's time uh, efficient. And it also enables everyone to have a voice so that you don't get groupthink, right? It encourages divergent thinking so everyone has a chance to hear what has to be said, including the leader's inputs um, as well. Um, I did work with one group uh, that took a whole year trying to come to consensus on an issue. And uh, it was clear to me they weren't really listening to each other. This wasn't a leader issue, it was a group issue. Uh, and what I did is did the Delphi and in, in, in two meetings, they resolved the entire issue hmm. using this Delphi method mm -hmm. uh, because everything was there in black and white. Everyone's voice was heard. And then the answer became really clear to them as a group. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess the reason why I am still debating this absenteeism of the leader is not only because of group think, but I also think that there's some validity in, in it. Uh, I know that I listened to a tape of uh, Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, who interviewed, I don't remember who it was, whether it was Alan Mulally or somebody else. And he said, what was the greatest thing that you've learned in coaching? And the response was that whatever I say when I'm near my employees becomes the golden rule. And sometimes I just want to hear them think. And so I've become more and more, personally, I've become more and more cognizant of listening. But I think there is, and I'm having this argument back and forth with myself, there is the ability to go to a meeting and zip it, right? And you get such wealth of information back by just listening versus not going to a meeting and having the results handed to you by a group of people. I, I think you're missing the fineness of the conversation. I could see lots of 
opportunities for disruptive think to come Let's through. See. Yeah. Well, because so, obviously, uh, depending on how the meeting results are communicated back, um, you, you're likely to miss important details and the nuance of what was said. And, uh, and if it's in a written format, it, it's hard to communicate the tone as well. So certainly there's a lot that might get lost in translation uh, between when you're not present. Uh, I would agree with that. Yeah, so I think I'm coming down to the point where perhaps it is as simple as this, training a leader not to say anything. <laughs> because it is incredibly hard. I started doing that in a couple of meetings and I literally have been sitting there like, don't say a thing, but keep a smile. <laughs> don't say a thing because I know that I'm learning a lot by not speaking, but you want to jump in and you want to give an answer because you know you have the answers to the questions. But in knowing that you know the answers to the questions, sometimes the answers are for the wrong question. Mm, really interesting point. You know? Absolutely. So I, I, you know, I graduated from the New School of Social Research and I have an expression that what I learned as a graduate student coming, graduating from there was that the answer is the beginning of the question. Mm. And I have started to work on myself to, to engage in that, which is to really just listen as much as you want to say that's wrong or that's right, even stronger, that's right. Because I think it's easier to say it's wrong than it is to say it's right because it's right requires more listening. Right. You know, and more processing because in there, there's a nugget of information that's agreeing with you, but there's also a nugget of learning. Because, yeah, you never know um, what might come up uh, that you can still go deeper uh, on any particular issue. And uh, being able to hear more before you believe you've got what you need uh, might be that one key that opens up the next step. Absolutely. And, and I have found that out quite a few times since I've learned to be quiet. <laughs> but I, I wonder... I wonder how, I don't have an answer, how do, how do people in the meeting feel, and maybe you have an answer, with the leader, the C-suite, sitting there and not saying anything? How do they feel? Are they comfortable? You know, I think it depends on the ground rules of the meeting and, and also the intention of the meeting. So being able to uh, be clear about that, hey, I'm... I'm here to listen for this meeting or maybe uh, having someone else facilitate it where they aren't looking to the leader to, to drive it themselves. Um, or, you know, the leader can develop a new rule like I did with the one team that they always go last. Right. Um, uh, and, and maybe they're uh, what they say at the end is uh, a summary of what they've heard. Yeah. Oh, that I love that. I love that. 
so that everybody feels like that they're heard. Right, exactly. So they may still say something, but it's it's uh, acknowledging, you know, the the, the group's inputs. Uh, you know, so I think part of it is about the culture of the team and the, how the meeting is set up. You know, what are the what's the role of, of the leader in this particular meeting, and uh, how we're going to do that. I love that, Terry. I think that that's, that's actually the key answer, which is to say, now, I think some people, uh, I don't believe that I have this, is that they're afraid to hear the other people speak because they feel that it means that they're no longer respected or they're seen as not being the leader anymore. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you deal with leaders that have those issues? That are fearful if they don't stay in control that they'll lose power or or well, you know, I think again, um, there's a lot of ways to maintain um, authority uh, and and also uh, power, and listening is one of them. I agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's kind of non-intuitive, uh, but quite powerful. Hey, Terry, what do you consider, what what are the three best, we're gonna go on threes, not fives, because fives I didn't prepare you for, but what would you say the three most important skills within the listening skills? Right, um, so, so number one, I believe, is to quiet your own mind, because you know many leaders are very quick thinkers, they're often strategic, they're often creative, and, and and all that's wonderful, but um, in the listening mode, right? You're you're, you're putting your own um, thoughts on hold for a minute, uh, and allowing others to bring forward their thoughts. So, I think that is uh, quieting your own mind. Those those voices inside um, is is number one, uh, and and certainly things like meditation and, and practicing quietness. Um, and listening in that setting can really help there. Um, that, that's a big one, right? Because we want to jump in right away with our own ideas often uh, as leaders. There's a little trick with that too called mind clearing. You can have a piece of paper in front of you and, and take a quick note so, so that you don't lose your thought. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's uh, to clear the mind so you can go back to listening fully. Um, by capturing that quick idea on a piece of paper. Uh, and we used that a lot when we did innovation workshops as, as a way to uh, keep people focused on the speaker. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that way I think is number one, um, is being able to quiet your own mind. I think number two is listening isn't just being quiet, it's also uh, engaging the other person, which means asking questions uh, and also um, being able to get, use body language to indicate that you are engaged. And it might be something as simple as head nodding or uh, eye contact, um, but, but a really short, powerful question, which you know is the bread and butter of coaching, right, um, is really uh, critical too for good listening, is, is asking the right question. And not a question to lead the witness, but a question that is genuinely helping the other person with their thinking, like going deeper into their uh, logic, their approach, their uh, insight, uh, pulling out even more 
of uh, what they have to say. Um, so the question is, is not for the listener, it's for the, the speaker, actually. To, to I, I want to dive a little bit more into that because oftentimes uh, people who ask questions, it sounds defensive. Right. Um, or maybe even not defensive, it sounds antagonistic. So how do you ask that question when somebody is trying to present a new concept without sounding like, what are you talking about? You right. Know? Well, a lot of it is attitude. I think having a, a attitude of curiosity is really critical there as opposed to judgment. You know, if you're having an attitude of judgment, it'll come across as, as you know, defensive or judgmental. If, if you have, and you can see this in political questioning, right, uh, on TV, you know, more, more often than not, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a battle. So the questions are intended to discredit the speaker. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about questions that actually support the speaker. Mm -hmm. So the speaker feels validated, that they feel like you're really genuinely interested in them and what they have to say, that you're really curious so, and, and we can all do this, right? It's, it's, a, it's in the attitude of trying to understand. Uh, and they might be questions because you really don't understand, uh, but the speaker will be probably happy to answer those because you're really, um, you know, making a big effort to, to connect with them. That's so right. it, feels, it feels loving and supportive yes. and genuine and curious uh, as opposed to, uh, a battle or defeatist or judgmental or critical and, and we can all feel the difference right it, it, it's and, it, and we can tell by uh, the emotional content of the question and, and I also think I want to add to that because um, I think people who are strong leaders like myself and people and then you combine that with an I'm an INTJ my questions are going to sound hard and to the point. And so I've learned to say to people, I'm only asking this question to get a better understanding yeah. of you know, the direction you're going into or to get clarity. And I think that that helps versus somebody thinking you're being a real smart aleck and just trying to pin them against the wall. Right, so sharing your intention can certainly do that. Um, like that, sharing your intention, okay? Sometimes it can backfire if it's not genuine. <laughs> really? Tell, but, tell me an example. Well, it, we, we see this more in uh, political settings where they, they, they're uh, under pretense, we'll say, just, and you'll, you'll see uh, the questioner uh, sometimes feigning, um, feigning their ignorance when, when you know they really know what they uh, are talking about. Uh, they'll say something like, explain this to me like I'm a third grader. You, you oh, know, yeah. Okay. That yeah. Kind of thing. Um, yeah. That's a good example of how that can show up. And so I think you have to be, uh, the question has to, the motion and context has to match uh, uh, with what you're really trying to do or people won't believe it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Okay, so you gave us um, quiet your own mind, 
like for medication, uh, med medication, gosh. That might medication. work too. But. <laughs> yeah, I, what am I promoting here? <laughs> okay, I, I like that. Um, and engage the other person. And what was the third one? So, so a third, I think the third one is to um, have presence. And, and presence is that um, more, uh, intangible feeling that you're really there with the person that you're not checked out or thinking about something else, or, you know, uh, an obvious way you exhibit presence is the not check email while you're in the meeting. Ah, okay. <laughs> how many people do that? Right. They think, Oh, I'll just answer this quick email. Meanwhile, someone's like, sharing their deepest, you know, passion. And now, could you say that again for me? <laughs> uh, but, you know, on a practical level, it's, it's things like that. But on a deeper level, it's having you uh, really feel understood as a speaker, like, like you, you actually get people. And again, eye contact is a method to do that, body language. Uh, but it's really more of an energetic state and I know that might sound kind of ephemeral, but we all have energy fields, right? That we are projecting and we can tell if somebody's with us or somewhere, somewhere yeah. else. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. agree, I agree, yeah. <clears throat> uh, I, I've heard that in comments about how I interview people, <laughs> which is, yeah, you will definitely engage CB. <laughs> right. And, and it felt comfortable. It felt like a natural flow, <clears throat> not to, not to be braggadocious, but I've been on interviews with people where you're sort of spilling your guts out and the, and they just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Give me some emotion here. Let me, I feel like I'm alone, right? Absolutely. That's another great example is that emotional element of it. And, and really it may be even um, excitement, yeah. you know, or at least, or at least curiosity for what the other person's saying. Yeah. Wow, Terry, this is such great information. I, I hate to end, but I think that we're coming up on an hour. Uh, and I definitely would love for you to come back. I would be happy to. It's always a pleasure. You have such a, I mean, God, your head is it's just a fountain of knowledge. <laughs> I thought, you know, I know that you're very involved with, um, uh, coaching supervision. So when you said you were going to come on the show, I thought, huh, no, this is not for other coaches. This is for leaders. And I thought, but I love Terry. I'm going to go with a trust factor here. I'm going <laughs> to trust that he's going to say something that's appropriate for leaders of the C-suite. He's not going to talk about things that are appropriate for coaches to know. And boy, am I glad I followed my gut. You are just amazing. Well, thank you, amazing. <laughs> so are you a great interview. I really appreciate your thoughtful questions. Thank you. Thank you. So listen, everyone uh, who's on this call, this has been Challenges of the C-Suite brought to you by the Association of Corporate Executive Coaches. And we've had the honor and privilege of talking to Dr. Terry and Gosh, I, I just can't think of a better person to have on this show. As I said, we're talking 
a walking encyclopedia. And for those of you that are too young to know what an encyclopedia is, <laughs> a walking Wikipedia. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, thank you, CB, for your kind words. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> this is CB Bowman Live. Come back and join us sometime. Meantime, excellent success out there. Bye now. Bye, everyone. <laughs>